The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. We are beginning a series, a thematic series, on the theme of the honor of God. The honor of God. And this subject matter of the honor of God is really a subject that has in some ways possess me. Since I was a, a young boy, I've thought and have been influenced by this reality that the believer is to honor God. And this theme is woven throughout the Scriptures, and it's something that I have studied really my entire adult life. Uh, it's something that when I was going around in little churches in Kentucky, it was normally this theme of the honor of God that I would preach on. So it's really become, in some respects, my life message. And uh, what I would like to do over the next few Sunday nights is share that message with you and trace this theme for you. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you see it, you begin to see just the massive implications there for your life. So if you grabbed an outline, I'd like to just show you where we're going over the next few weeks. We'll probably finish this in June. But tonight is an introduction. And next week, the, the topic is the rule of honor. Uh, the Bible has a rule, uh, a non-negotiable rule. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, the third uh, night will be God honors God. Fourth, hiding in shame. Fifth, the weightiest steps. Six, St. Anselm and the shamed Christ. Seven, living the weighty life. Eight, worship, honoring the triune God. Nine, the battle for honor. Ten, enduring shame for Christ. And eleven, the weightiest day. So I put those in front of you because I want you to be intrigued about what they're about so you'll keep coming back. So you'll have to come back and see. All right, let's start by defining our terms. I wish I had a, a whiteboard right here that I could write the terms are, but I don't. So I put the, uh, the terms on your sheet for you. The Hebrew word that's used to translate honor is kabod. Kabod. And that word literally means, it doesn't actually literally mean honor, it literally means weighty or heavy or severe. Sometimes it's translated in the Old Testament as glory. And the idea is this to honor something or someone, you are literally showing the heaviness or weightiness of that person in your life. To honor something shows that that thing is weighty to you, that thing is important to you. Tonight I'm wearing these uh, Allen and Edmund dress shoes, and I don't know if you can see them, I shined them up. 
these belong to my grandfather, and I'm wearing them to honor him. They show that his influence was weighty in my life. And you do all these sorts of things, right, throughout your life. You do things. You stand up when uh, the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance is given, when the national anthem is played. Why do you do that? Because you are showing that the, our nation is a weighty reality in your life. So this uh, theme runs throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, the Greek words are tamao and uh, meg. Luno, and they basically mean the same thing, that you're giving honor or deference, that you're showing the heaviness of something, that you're respecting something, that you're showing admiration to something. And on the flip side, the concept of shame is similar. If to honor something, you're showing the heaviness of that thing, to shame something, you're treating it lightly. It's as if it was nothing, that it doesn't deserve respect. And in the world of the Bible, and even the world of America 200 years ago, this was the currency of the day. This was how people viewed the world, is through this lens of honor and shame. And what that meant is this, is that the honor of your family name would be the most treasured reality for you. Didn't matter so much how wealthy you were or how, or how famous you were. What mattered was is that your name was honored. Remember uh, the name Aaron Burr? Does that name ring a bell? Alexander Hamilton? Why are they famous besides their, besides their, their part in the, the Constitution? A duel. Why did they have a duel? Because somebody's honor was slighted. And that couldn't go undone. And so they squared, with, squared away with pistols, had a duel. Remember who won? Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr won. And it was about honor. Honor. And in our culture, we are no longer an honor and shame culture. We are a little bit. We still understand to a slight degree what it means to honor something. But now, in our culture, what's more prized is wealth, right? It doesn't really matter whether people honor me so much as that I'm rich. That, that's more the thinking. It doesn't really matter if I'm honored or shamed as long as I'm famous. I mean, I'll do stupid stuff to get on YouTube. And if people know me, that's what counts. It doesn't matter if people are laughing at me, right? What matters is that I'm popular, so we have a very diluted understanding of what it means to honor something. When I was a series commander in the Marine Corps, my job was to train the recruits and teach them the core values of the Marine Corps, the history of the Marine Corps. And I would gather basically in a large classroom about four or 500 recruits and I would teach them Marine Corps history. And, and another thing that I would teach them are the Marine Corps values. And the Marine Corps values are honor, courage, and commitment. And those have been the Marine Corps core values since 1775, since the Marine Corps was inaugurated in Tun Tavern, Philadelphia. Okay. So the recruits would understand courage, right? What is courage? It's, it's 
acting in the presence of danger. Uh, despite your fear, it's being able to move forward and, and act with bravery. They understood courage. They understood commitment. What does it mean to be committed to something? It means that you're all in. It means that you're there. It means that you're giving it your all. But what they struggled to understand was honor. Honor. What does it mean to honor something or, or someone? That was what they struggled to understand. And the way that I would teach it to them is in the Marine Corps hymn, uh, there's a line, and it says, um, let me, I'm, I'm trying to think where to pick up. It goes like this. First to fight for right and freedom, and to keep our honor clean. We are proud to claim the title of the United States Marines. What the honoring means is that being a Marine should mean something to you. That it means something to pin that eagle globe and anchor on your collar. And that you have a responsibility to honor the Corps, your country, and your fellow Marines. And that you want that reality in people's minds to be heavy. You want people, when the name Marine is talked about, you want people to honor the Marine Corps. You want people to honor the country. You don't want to bring shame on the Corps and country by doing something uh, that's ignominious or, or uh, un, not noble, right? So, so that's the, the meaning. But often this was met with confused looks. I'll, I'll give you another example. A few years ago, I was walking uh, at Newport Beach, and I was tired, you know, West Coast time, and I wanted to go get a cup of coffee. And so I was walking there near the marina, and there is a coffee shop there called Honor Coffee. Honor Coffee. And I thought to myself, this should be interesting. So I go inside, and I order a cup of coffee. And the barista brings the cup, and I said, now this is an interesting name for a coffee shop. Where, who came up with Honor Coffee? What does it mean? And the barista, <laughs> the barista looked at me uh, like I was an alien with, <laughs> with uh, antlers coming out of my head or something. But they were like, uh, I, I just serve the coffee here. And I said, well, is there a manager here? Is, is, is the owner of the store here? And they said, oh, well, the manager's over there. So I take my cup of coffee, and I walk over, and I said, you know, what does it mean? And, and I'm looking for something good here. I'm looking for something, man, we love coffee, and we want coffee to be cherished by people. You know, as a coffee drinker, I'm looking for something bold, right? And I say, you know, what does it mean, honor coffee? And, and he just goes, we just like coffee, man. And that was it. So I walked away, and I was just thinking to myself, man, people really don't know what it means to honor something. People don't know what honor means. Well, this, if you are to understand the Bible, you have to understand honor. And you have to understand shame because this was their entire worldview. And I'm just going to give you a few examples from Scripture. There's literally, you could find hundreds of places where honor and shame are either mentioned or alluded to. But let me just give you a few examples. First, in the Ten Commandments, 
the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, 12, says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So children have a responsibility, according to the fifth commandment, to honor their parents. That means that they're to treat their parents as weighty in their life. Why is that? Because the parents were the mediators between them and God. If they were to learn to honor God, they must first learn to honor their parents. Because Deuteronomy 6, what are the parents teaching the children? Who God is. So first they have to learn to honor the parents. Then they're going to learn to honor God. David says this in Psalm 31.1. He says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Later, uh, this, sh- this should be uh, Psalm 31.11, not Psalm 32. David says, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Look, it's the idea of being treated lightly. this, This is the most dreaded thing, is that your neighbors, the people that you dwell with, that you live with, would shame you, that you would bring reproach to your family, to your friends. Another example, Psalm 35, 26. David prays this for his enemies. Look at this. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. That, this is the worst thing that you could pray against somebody outside of their death and, and final judgment. He's saying, let them be clothed with shame. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 51, 51, he's talking about the Babylonians and all that the Babylonians have done to them. He says, we are put to shame, for we have heard reproach. Dishonor has covered our face, for foreigners have come into the holy places of the Lord's house. He's saying the foreigners, the people around us, treat us lightly. What's the evidence of this? They come into the temple. Nothing about us is honored by them. We're treated lightly. We're shamed. We're lightly esteemed. Here's some New Testament examples. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Why would Timothy be ashamed? One, if he disqualified himself morally, right? If he, if he committed a grievous sin that brought reproach on the name of Christ. Or two, if he failed in his duties to properly teach the Word of God. So Paul says to Timothy, you rightly handle the Word of truth so that you do not bring reproach and shame on the office of pastor. Paul says this in Romans 1, 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do you hear that? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Everywhere in the ancient world, when the gospel was preached, for many it was a message of shame. It was a message of shame. Do you know why that is? It's because the message of the gospel is the message of a crucified Savior. There was no greater picture in the ancient world of shame than someone dying naked on a cross. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that it was folly to Gentiles. It was foolish to Jews because they understood the cross to be a place of cursing. So it was a message that was considered silly by many. But notice what Paul says. He says, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. Our world tries to shame me because of this message. But I am not ashamed. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. I've seen its power unleashed in people's lives to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Right? It's the power of God. One more example let me give you. Just, are you starting to see how this is running throughout the course of the Bible? That this is the fabric and how both people in the New Testament and the Old Testament thought and saw the world in terms of their worldview? Paul says this, this is 1 Timothy 6, 13. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. That's shame. He he says he, he kept the commandment blameless when he was before Pontius Pilate. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, listen to this, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. To him be honor. Honor. And this helps us transition really to this theme. We've been looking at many of these verses describe honor and shame in a horizontal way. And now you see this transition, I think, to the vertical aspect of honor. That Paul's saying that we are to give God honor, that we are to give Christ honor. So let me just translate that. What is he saying? He's saying that Christ is to be the heaviest and weightiest reality in our lives. That's what he's saying. He's saying that Christ is to press upon us in such a way that we live our lives to honor him. And unfortunately, this aspect of God's weightiness, I think, this is my opinion, is largely missing in Western Christianity. Now, It's present in places. There are many faithful churches, and there are many faithful pastors. But by and large, this aspect of God's weightiness has been lost because everything is done very flippantly and lightly. And because of that, God is treated lightly. And this is reflected in even the announcements so often, the announcements in a church. You know, hey, everybody, 
we're so glad you're here. Everybody, you know, sit down, you know, grab a coffee out there. We got the sport games on out, outside in the foyer. I'm not kidding. This, this is the air that so many people showing up to churches in the Western world breathe. And, it's, and this flippancy is reflected in the aesthetics, the music, the posture, and most of all, the preaching. Most of all, the preaching. Because so much of preaching has been reduced to comedy, storytelling, and pragmatism. How can you be a better parent? How can you be a better steward of your finances? Not that those things are bad, but it becomes a very man-centered approach. So what is missing, I think, in churches, and for those of you who've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about this, is the vision of God. Because how can you honor someone whom you don't see? right? How, how, can you, how can you experience the weightiness of God if you don't see God in your worship, if you don't see God in your life? I was watching a documentary about these climbers that were going to go climb K2. Anybody know about K2? It's the, the second highest mountain in the world. And, and many say it's, it's the hardest mountain to climb. It's only a few hundred feet shorter than Everest. And the climbers, you know, the, the cameraman is walking behind these climbers, and the, and the climbers are basically just trying to get, at the beginning of the documentary, to base camp, uh, where, well, where they will then begin to make their ascent up the mountain. And what happens in the documentary is they round a curve, basically, uh, with, with the mountains, and they glimpse K2 for the first time. They glimpse the mountain for the first time, and they're floored. They're blown away in honestly sheer terror that the mountain is this big. Because it's one thing to know that K2 is the second tallest mountain. It's one thing to know that it's one of the most dangerous mountains in the world. It's another thing to come around a bend in the trail and see that mountain and just face it in sheer awe. But that, my friends, is how the Bible is calling us to live. The phrase is quorum Deo. Quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase, and it means before the face of God. The Bible calls us to live in the presence of Almighty God, that the reality of God presses down upon you, and that changes how you live your life in every way, ethically, morally, in terms of your family life, in terms of your business life, in terms of your worship, in terms of how you parent your children, because the reality of who God is is pressing upon you, just like that mountain, the reality of that awesome mountain pressed down upon those climbers. We're to live quorum Deo before the face of God where the weightiness of his character is the most important reality in our lives. I want to show you this from the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 
28 and 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Talking about inheriting the kingdom of God as a believer. And then he says this, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The word used for reverence is eulabia. It means reverent awe in the presence of God. It's a word that's used to describe the awakening to what is transcendent. It's a word to describe the holy fear of God. The writer of Hebrews uses this word one other time in his epistle, and that's in Hebrews 5, 7. And I want you to see, this, this is so profound how he uses this word. He uses this word to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. Now listen, and he was heard because of his reverence, because of his eulabia. Think about this. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He has been with the Father from all of eternity, right? He's no, he's, he and the Father are one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's God Himself. He's the God-man. And the writer of Hebrews says that throughout His ministry, Jesus would approach the Father in prayer, okay? So He, he prays with prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. And look at why he was heard. You would think he was heard because he's the Son of God. Well, yes, that would be a reason why he was heard. But look at why it is mentioned. He was heard because of his reverence for the Father. His reverence for God. He was heard because of his holy awe for God. So I think this gives us insight into how the Lord Jesus lived his life. This doesn't say that he did this when he was just in the synagogue or the temple. He lived his life every moment with a sense of reverence for the Father. That, that vision of God was full on. He never lost that vision of God. And that vision of God pressed upon him so that he lived with reverence. He also says, lived with awe, awe, that, that, that sense of awesomeness of the Father. You know, we use that word awesome all the time. But really, it should be reserved for what is most awesome, God. And the writer of Hebrews says, that is how we are to approach God. That is how we are to think of God. That is how we are to worship God. That is how we are to live our lives. Why? Look at verse 29. There's just one explanation. What does he say? 
He says, for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. When was the last time you heard God described as a consuming fire? It's talking about the transcendent God. We're so used to focusing on the imminent God who's here with us. And we need to focus on the imminent God. But God is not merely imminent. He's also transcendent. He's outside of space and time. He's holy, omnipotent, eternal. There is simply no one like our God. Here's the picture. If you want to see the picture that the writer of Hebrews is looking at, just turn to the left to, he, to the book of Exodus, Exodus 24. Here's the picture he has in mind. Exodus 24, beginning in verse 12. Look at Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stones. He's talking about receiving the Ten Commandments with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. By the way, were the children of Israel allowed to go up on the mountain? No, 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 no. They had pylons going around the entire mountain, which were basically do not enter signs. You were not allowed to get near the mountain. The elders were allowed to come up a little bit of the way. But that was it. Everybody else, you had to stay off the mountain or you would die. So when God tells Moses to come up, he's allowed, but that's it. No one else can come up onto the mountain. And Moses said to the elders, verse 14, wait here for us until we return to you. You don't want to come up further than this. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. In other words, Aaron's in charge until I get back. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory, the kabod of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. So literally this heavy presence of God dwelt on on the mountain. I mean, this is so otherly and so transcendent and so holy. It's hard to even picture what this must have looked like. And the cloud covered it six days. So Moses and Joshua are in the midst of this cloud. Think about this. For six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud Now, look at verse 17. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. There it is. A consuming fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That's what the writer of Hebrews is wanting you to think about. This awesome, holy 
God. And he's saying, because this God is awesome and holy. Yeah, we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean we stop reverencing him and living our lives in awe of him. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Remember, Sinclair Ferguson told this story about when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones came to Scotland to preach when Sinclair Ferguson was a teenager. And for whatever reason, the first night he couldn't go hear him preach. He really wanted to, but he, he had another uh, appointment and couldn't go. And, and the next day, he spoke to a friend of his, a girl who had gone to hear him. And he asked her, he said, what was it like to hear Dr. Lloyd-Jones preach? And she looked at him, and she was quiet, and she said, it felt like the building was about to fall down. That the presence of God was so real that it felt like the walls of the building were about to collapse on themselves. That is worship with reverence and awe for God. And until we recover that, we haven't recovered true Christianity. You see, true Christianity is about knowing God. It's about quorum Deo, living your life before the face of God. It's about living a life that honors Him, right? Isn't this Ephesians 4.1, to live your life in such a way that's worthy of the gospel? Live a life that's indicative of what Christ has done, that shows the weightiness of the great realities of Christianity. Let me give you a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, true Christianity is the recovery of the awareness of the awesomeness of God, end quote. True Christianity is the awareness of of the awesomeness of God. He says, the basis of everything is the sovereign, transcendent, living God who in his eternal, glorious freedom acts, intervenes, and interferes with the life of the whole church and individuals. And if there is anything that is more obvious than anything else in the life of the church, it is the failure to start with and to believe that truth. It's the failure to start with the reality of the transcendent God. Because, be, listen, because then you don't know what sin is, right? How, how can you explain sin to a sinner? Well, sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark of what? A holy God. You can't understand sin without understanding first who God is. You can't understand salvation if you, if you don't understand Christ's righteousness, God's holiness. You can't understand the kingdom that's coming if you don't understand God's omnipotence and power and sovereignty. Everything hinges on understanding the reality of a transcendent God. Now, Lloyd-Jones said this in 1959. 63 years ago, if I'm doing my math right, he says, 
If there is anything that is more obvious than anything else in the life of the church, it is the failure to start with and to believe this truth. How are we doing 63 years better? I mean, just look at our country, right? Look at the effect that Christianity is having on our nation. Negligible. Negligible. Look at what's being shown in our movies. You see what Disney just announced that's coming out? Uh, Another same-sex kiss in the next movie? Look, I mean, this stuff is just everywhere. What's happened? I'll tell you what's happened. Is Christianity has stopped making an impact in this country. Why has it stopped making an impact? Because the Christians lost sight of God. God isn't a heavy reality in their life. So why should it be a heavy reality in the life of the world? People look at the churches and they see that the, the, the churches are darkened on Sunday nights. doesn't seem that important to Christians. Why should God be important to us? Here's another problem that happened, I think, with the church. And, and I'm speaking, you know, this, this is just something that I think we've all grown up in, is that somewhere along the way the church stopped being about the worship and honor of God and about the nickels and noses right? It, it became about the budget and the people in the pew. And, and the shift that happens is this, is that if we want people to come, we need to make things comfortable for them. Is the vision of God as a consuming fire comfortable? It's very, in fact, uncomfortable. That God as a consuming fire is holy and he calls us to live in light of that reality, and he calls us to confession and repentance and holiness, right? First Peter 1, be holy for I am holy. Are these realities comfortable to a world that largely rejects Christianity? No, they're very uncomfortable. That message doesn't preach to a world that's used to getting everything catered to them. And so what happened? The church started to shift. Yeah, we believe that God is holy, technically. We just don't really act like it. And this is reflected, I think, in how modern Christians live their lives because they go to churches that are more man-centered than God-centered, so why should we then expect them to then go out and live God-centered lives? His character does not grip, by and large, our day-to-day actions. Most professing Christians are distracted by a thousand trivialities, probably spend more time on their smartphones than in prayer. When I was growing up, one time I went to the movies with my grandpa Castleberry, and in the first 15 minutes of the movie, someone said God's name in vain. I think they said GD. He walked out. He walked out. Why did he walk out? Because God's name was blasphemed. For him, that was worse than anything else. We are not 
disturbed and angered by the things that should anger us. When God's name is shamed and dishonored. All this to say that if the church, if Western Christianity rediscovers a vision of God and God in his glory, that this heaviness and weightiness of God will overwhelm us. Our churches would be full of people. We would be motivated to worship him and advance his kingdom through the advance of the gospel. We would be humble people because we see ourselves in light of his in light of our sin and in light of his glory and the world would have to stop and take notice of the phenomenon of Christianity because of the reality of God in our lives. That's a fact. We have to recover this reality of being God-centered, people who live for his honor. I want to close tonight, and then I'll answer questions. But I want to close tonight by bringing you to Psalm 145. I want you to turn to Psalm 145, and I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to really exposit it or make many comments. Psalm 145 is the last psalm in the Psalter that David wrote. This is David's bookend of his 73 psalms. And this psalm is a call to live a God-centered life, to honor God. I want you to read it with me. The first seven verses, and I'll just give you headings so you can help, so you can kind of navigate it as I read it, is about the greatness of God's character. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. He, notice this vision of God. He's saying, I will meditate on your splendor, on your glorious honor. I will, I will orient my life to these things. I will meditate on these things. He says, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Then in verse 8, he talks about the greatness of God's grace. God is not only great in character, but he's great towards us He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Then beginning in verse 11, he talks about the greatness of the Lord's kingdom. 
He says, they shall speak of the glory, the kabod, the heaviness of your kingdom, and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works." And then he talks about, in verse 14 through 16, the greatness of his common grace. Common grace is grace that God gives to everybody, not just the believer, to everything. He says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. In other words, the Lord provides food right? Who makes the crops grow? Who, who provides the food for the animals in the sea? God does all these things. He says, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Then in verse 17, he describes the greatness of God's salvation. He says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And then verse 21 is the greatness of his honor. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. The name of God represents God himself. And David says, this is his punctuation mark in the Psalms, let everyone praise the name of God, bless his name, honor his name forever and ever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would honor you in all that we do, that we would recover vision of God, that we would see you for who you are. You are a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of patience, a God of peace. And you are also a God who is holy, transcendent, immortal, invisible, omnipotent, outside of time, space, a God who is worthy to be revered and praised and honored. We pray, Lord, that we would recover this vision in our country, in our churches, in our worship, and in our lives, that we would honor you because you deserve to be honored. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.